Today's, te Today's teaching text comes from John 12, verses 12 to 18. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, friends. Um, for those of you that don't know, my name's Guy, and uh, I'm the pastor here, and it is a great joy to be with you this morning. And, and welcome. And if there's any seats in the center of where you find yourself, if you would just move into those seats, fill them in so the folks that come in in the next few minutes and embarrassingly have to walk right in front of all of us as we stare at them trying to find their seat coming in late, we'll be able to find a seat and it will be less embarrassing than hopefully I just made it sound like. Okay. One other thing um, I want to do before we jump into this text is um, just recognizing the fact that uh, so many folks have been through such a really rough week this week uh, in relationship to the explosion and all the chaos. And even, um, actually, anybody, that I know of, nobody from our church, from our community, was directly impacted and in, in lost their, their space. And if that's not true, if you know somebody that, um, that did lose their home or was impacted directly, please let me know. I know a number of you live on 7th Street or in the surrounding area and weren't able to get immediately into your home or had a pet or something that had to, have, had to be rescued or whatever, and so grateful that that was able to happen. But um, before we jump into this text and, and look further at this idea of Palm Sunday and, uh, and Jesus' life and journey, I wondered if we would just take a minute and just um, and pray on behalf of the first responders, the families who are still missing two loved ones, and, um, and of course all those who are impacted. Um, and as, a, as just another, just another side note before we pray, um, both families are, are fairly devastated as you can imagine. Um, I spent some time Thursday and Friday, both at the scene and also at the American Red Cross kind of reception area where the families were gathering. And so the one family, um, the, uh, Nicholas Figueroa, his family, he's from the Upper East Side and his family is all over the place, um, here in the city, a very large family. And uh, they are absolutely devastated. The parents are um, so depressed and downtrodden. Like, they just can't even leave their apartment right now. They're just stuck. Um, they just feel completely stuck and hopeless. And then uh, the other family, um, they're from Guatemala, and they're uh, four brothers. And their, rest, their whole rest of their family are all in, in Guatemala, in country still. Um, and so it's four brothers. They all live together. They, they, they worked together. They, they just did everything together. And so watching and spending time with these three brothers as they try to figure out where their, where their oldest brother, Moises, is, um, is just heartbreaking. And so um, we'll just, keep, with that in mind, we'll just keep, um, keep them in your thoughts and prayers, please, over the next couple of days. But let's, let's just bow our heads for a few minutes.
Let's think on these things and these people. And if you would, if you would just join me in, uh, in praying with them and for them. Father in heaven, we read throughout scripture that you are a shepherd, that you are a refuge, a rock, a strong tower, that you are a mighty shield. Father, we read throughout scripture that you and see in other, in other stories um, throughout your holy text that you are a God that comforts and that comes close and that knows our pain. And so, Father, we ask that you would be all of these things, that the fullness of your character would rest on these two families in particular who are missing their loved ones. Father, we still hold hope that there would be um, some sign of life and a miracle that would take place. God, we ask that you would um, continue to preserve life around this uh, disaster zone, around this explosion. And God, we pray that you would um, give people particular vision for how to love one another really well. And that this season, while it's tragic, would be also marked by more stories, God, of your people running alongside of others and meeting needs and bringing meals and caring for one another and opening up their doors and, and ministering through hospitality and God, providing for the basic needs and necessities of life. God, we pray that um, we would all be inspired by some type of um, missional creativity that we've never experienced before. Not for our own sake, God, not for our own glory, but for yours, Father. God, if there are particular ways that we as a community could respond, we ask that you would give us that kind of vision, that you would give us wisdom and clarity about how to move forward in that. Father, we ask that you would minister your Holy Spirit to these families that are really struggling right now, and that you would give them hope that you would be present with them. God, if they don't know you, that they would come to know you in this season, God, that you would bring more people, pastors and clergy and chaplains and other folks, just neighbors and friends that would come alongside of them and love them the way you do. Show them your love, God. Father, we pray that you would minister to those that are in shock, that just a week ago had a place to live and all of their worldly possessions, and today they have nothing. God, we pray that you would sustain them psychologically, emotionally, mentally, Father, and spiritually as well, that you would provide for them comfort them in these moments. God, for those of us in the room who actually, I think, probably feel a little distant or removed or even possibly feel guilty because we don't feel anything, God, would you just speak to us as well? Give us freedom to be who we are and, and, and permission to follow after you as we see you moving. Lord, we thank you that we have opportunity to stand with our neighbors and, and be light in a dark place. And certainly that's happening in this season. We pray for that. Continue, God, to protect the first responders, everybody um, from the mayor's office to the FDNY to the NYPD, OEM, all these people, God, that are working tirelessly to try to bring order um, and, and health and safety to this area, God. We pray that you would protect them and give them um, vision and kindness and strength. In your name, we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for that. If there's particular um, needs that you know of, please let me know. Um, let, let us know so that we can continue to try to figure out how exactly it is that we might be able to step into that and, and help. As we look at this text, I have one question just to start off with this morning. Let me ask you this. When's the last, what's the last great parade you ever saw or you've seen or participated in? Real question, not rhetorical. St. Patrick's Day Parade, any of you see that recently here in the city? Nope, none of you. None of you care. A lot of you are wearing green this morning, incidentally, but you don't care about St. Patrick's Day. Not a big deal. Macy's Day Parade, is that a big deal for some of you? Any of you seen that live? None of you have bothered to even pay attention to that. What? Who are we talking to? You kids are too cool for school. I love it. Yes, Joanna. 
the what parade? The Filipino Independence Parade. Thank you for being patriotic and caring about community life. Maybe some of you participated in SantaCon last, last winter. No? Okay. You don't want to admit that? I understand. I wouldn't either. I get it. At the, uh, at the, the, the disaster site on, on, um, on Thursday was, was around, and because of my relationship with the clergy liaison department, the NYPD and stuff, I was able to be all over the place, behind the scenes, right across the street from everything. And, um, of course, it's very chaotic right away when a disaster like this happens. And, um, and then all of a sudden, all the official people start showing up. And so you have all the brass in each of the departments, the chiefs and everything show up. But then when the mayor shows up, that's when you know it's on. Because all, all the black SUVs show up that are unmarked, the lights are going, Secret Service shows up, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, you know something very unique is about to take place. And so Mayor de Blasio shows up, and um, he decides he's going to do a press release on East 6th Street. Any of you see it on the news or on social media or anything? And so I'm standing on, on the side of East 6th Street, and all of a sudden... Business as usual shuts down. The Secret Service people are all over the place. The press start running, I mean, like sprinting with all this big gear they have. You know something's about to take place. And then I'm standing on the edge, and, uh, and the police are like, stand back, get out of the way, whatever, this whole thing. So I'm trying, trying to stay, stand out of the way. And then Mayor de Blasio and his whole entourage comes out of his SUVs and walks right past me. I make eye contact with Mayor de Blasio. Hi, how are you? He shakes my hand. I'm like, I'm never washing it again. Actually, I didn't say that. But he walks right past me, and I could not, you could not be, you, 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 there's no way you could miss the parade, the procession that was taking place on East 6th Street in this moment. Like, it was just so profound. The Secret Service, the whole thing. They're not really Secret Service, but they're basically his special detail. They're actually still part of the NYPD, but you don't care about that, so let's move on. All right. There's this huge grand procession that was happening, and everything else seemed to stop just to be able to focus on that. This is an image of uh, the Apollo 11 team, 1969, the ticker tape parade. What a fest. What an incredible parade, an incredible moment where you just know something special is happening, not just in New York City, but also in, in, in the history of America, in the history of actually humanity as we celebrate the great feats that have taken place with the Apollo 11 mission. And then we read about this text in, in actually three Gospels, but for us this morning in particular in John chapter 12, and we have this scene of Jesus, our great Messiah, riding in on a donkey. Go to the next slide. This is an historic image, a painting, a depiction of what it may have looked like when peasants and people are gathered. They're taking their clothes off, laying it down on the, on the very dirt path so that Jesus the Christ, this celebrated, long-awaited king, could have a proper entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem from the north. Obviously, this is a big deal. This is a big procession. This is a big festival, a big uh, party that's taking place. That when it was appropriate, everybody would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so this city that was already a special place, its its population would swell from, historians say, of about maybe 40,000 to over 200,000. It's similar to what happens every day in Manhattan, where about 1.6 million people live on this island, but throughout the course of any given day, on average, there could be 6 or 8 million people here. It was basically like that, very similar in Jerusalem. And so this humble peasant parade sets out to welcome Jesus. And in stark contrast to this parade is another parade, another procession that's happening across town, actually from the West. 
You see, because every year at Passover, as all of these tens of thousands of, of ritualistic and cultural and, and, and fervent Jewish people would come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate and to worship, the Roman Empire would sit back and think, this is not good for us. Because Roman, the Romans had occupied Jerusalem. They basically had their foot on the people's throat and said, you will do life the way that we want you to. And so there was a real chance for there to be an upheaval, for there to be a coup. And so the Roman emperors, Pilate and so forth, would say, listen, send your people in as well. Don't you dare let the Jews have the parade. Don't you dare let the Jews and the Jewish people have their moment in glory and not have some sense of, like, authority and control. And so Pilate and his procession, his army, this massive army, horses and chariots and leather armor and swords and spears and banners and bugles, all the, the whole scene would march in from the west. They would come in from essentially their beach house on the sea, march into Jerusalem. As if to say, you have a king, but guess what? We actually are on the throne. As if to say, you're longing for, uh, for, for a deliverer, or guess what? You're, there's no way you'll ever be powerful enough to overthrow our government, our rule, our reign. Pilate's procession was a visible presentation, a manifestation of Rome's imperial power. And they felt like there would be nothing that could come in the way of this. And so to basically remind the people of who was really in charge, this other parade would march into Jerusalem as if to say, no, 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 no. Your little peasant party, you think you have anything on us? You've got nothing. And so back on the other side of town, up to the north, you have this small and stark contrast to the might and power of Rome. You have this little brigade of, of peasants, of normal people, people just like you and I who have gathered together. They have nothing but what's around them. And uh, theologians believe that um, it was the time of season when actually palm fronds would have been the only thing they could have grabbed. It was the only, uh, it was the only branch. It was the only thing that had leaves on it. So they grabbed whatever they could, including their clothes, and threw them on the ground to create a pathway to properly honor and welcome their king. And so they shouted, Hosanna, which is essentially like saying, praise the Lord, praise God. They were having this charismatic, correct moment to worship the king. And so as we think about the historical context of this, just one thing, one thing comes to my mind this morning, friends, and it's, it's this. Well, one of the things that comes to my mind is this. We can wrestle with the historical nature of, of whether this took place, of what happened in the city of Jerusalem that day. But rather to me, it's not exactly like in question the events of that day as much as it is about whether or not what happened that day will impact your life or mine today. So I'm not so, I'm not so sure I want to wrestle or spend a bunch of time trying to convince you that what took place that day was real or true or exactly the way that we just read it or anything like that. But what I'm asking is, I'm wondering if what did take place that day could impact and have something to say to us this morning as you sit right where you do. I believe they can. I believe they will. I think where you're standing will make all the difference. I think what parade you find yourself in, marching in, celebrating, what superpower you find yourself bowing down to makes all the difference in the world. And so I recognize just a couple of movements. I think maybe you'll see them as well in this text. The first movement that I recognize is that Jesus himself moves towards something. Jesus is on the move. And it seems like he kind of always is. He's following the spirit of God as he asks the father, where are you at work? And so Jesus moves in. He moves into the city as king. And I think that's one of the things that we see in this text. 
is that Jesus is fulfilling scripture, the prophecies about him. He rides in, even though it's super humble and, and he, it's a borrowed donkey. There's still these elements, these signs of Jesus being king, that he's the one that they've been waiting for, that he has the authority, that he has the power. Jesus isn't tired in this picture. He's, he's been walking everywhere else. And so why wouldn't he walk into Jerusalem this day? Like, really, have you ever noticed? Like, read through the Gospels and what does it say? Usually the kind of the prefix or the preamble to whatever the story is, is as Jesus went, as they walked, Jesus was going from one place to the other. And usually he was walking. So Jesus isn't tired. He's not worn out, even though he's coming to the end of his, his, uh, his, his ministry on earth. He's not tired. So he gets, on a, he gets on a colt, on a donkey, as a symbol of his authority, of his, his uh, rightful place as the Son of God. He's entering as a king. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, gives us this picture that this is the prophetic vision. This is what we would, would expect. Here's the text. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you hear the language in there about the victory and about the sense of expectation of what, who this Messiah will be and what he'll do? And so rightly so that the, 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 anybody that, that knew this story, was familiar with it, would, would gather around and would bow down to this king and, and would recognize that if this truly is the Savior, then Rome can't stand in the way. Then he is king. And so Jesus correctly, rightly moves into Jerusalem as king and the people recognize that and they worship him and they honor him. There's another movement, though, and this is about the crowd. This has to do with the people themselves. The crowds move toward Jesus. We've been talking about this throughout the morning, honestly, right? Like this isn't necessarily rocket science or anything that you've never seen before. But the the second movement, it's important to recognize that the people knew who Jesus was and they began to move toward him as well. They spontaneously began to cut down these palm branches. They were taking their coats off. They were creating space for this Messiah to show up. And as I was thinking about this story, I was reminded of the other other places throughout the scriptures where like the rich young ruler or Peter himself or Bartimaeus, the, they all had these moments where they figured out who this Jesus was and began to worship him and honor him. They moved toward him. And so in this story, not only is Jesus rightfully king moving in, but also the people. There's some, some stirring, some tension, some movement that happens in the crowd, right? That draws them to Jesus. Don't miss this. They begin to recognize him as king as well, to welcome Jesus. There's a posture, a position of expectation, of longing, of worship. It's happening in the crowd's hearts. And if only it would have stayed there. If only that was like the particular movement that marked the people of God. Unfortunately, it's not. You see, the next movement happens in this story. We see it a little bit here in John, but we certainly see it also in the other two gospel accounts that the people actually don't stay there. They move on. Something happens in them where they get tired or frustrated or bored or something because we know from the story that by Friday afternoon... When Jesus is at his worst and he needs his people the most, there's nobody to be found. They've all left him. 
He's there by himself. Not even his closest disciples are there to be with him. And so there's a fault line that can be drawn and that can be seen and represented in their response from Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We love you. Thank you so much for being here. All the way to the point where now not only are their lips quiet, but they can't be found anywhere. They're nowhere to be seen. And I wonder if we find ourselves here with a similar tension in our lives and our stories. Where on the one hand, we, we grab whatever we can, our humble little peasant, little feeble beginnings to be able to worship this king, this God, when we need him most. But then something happens, something stirs, something distracts, something gets in the way, something causes us to get our focus and attention off. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves um, bored, maybe, distracted. The attention of our hearts is drawn to something else, and all of a sudden we ourselves would find um, resonance in the people of this first story. We find ourselves moving on, away from the Savior. And then I would also just suggest one other movement this morning. Because while most people move toward Jesus and then away from Him, there does seem to be a couple of signs, whereas maybe people didn't get it exactly perfect, there are a few folks who seem to indicate they were beginning to get it. They were beginning to just kind of make sense of this greater story. And so I would suggest the fourth movement this morning. And I see this fourth movement, this fourth interaction, this, this person who's, who's moving into this space of unconditional worship in the, in the person of Mary. The story of Mary is, if you, if you don't remember, is, is one where she breaks into this scene and she anoints Jesus with this very expensive perfume. She breaks this jar, this costly investment that she makes to anoint Jesus' feet. Now, whether she fully gets the fact that Jesus is about to die or not is left to be argued. But essentially what she is doing is preparing her king for burial. And she's the only one that even comes close to getting it, friends. The disciples, they don't get it. The guys that walked with him, his closest three, Peter, James, and John, they don't get it. Peter denies Jesus. You guys know that story. But Mary gets it. Mary, something clicks for Mary. Mary moves in toward this Savior. And even if she doesn't completely understand, Mary worships, and her worship is foiled to the crowd's welcome. In contrast to the, the cheap way of the peasants of just throwing down whatever they could, Mary takes the thing that cost her the most and gives it to Christ. She lays it all down. She pours out what she will never be able to pick back up. And so there's this picture of Mary that I think is profound in this story, in this journey. And while it's not exactly in our text, it is a part of the context, the larger scene of what's happening at this time in Jesus' life. And in contrast to those people who are rushing toward the Savior that will deliver them from, from the oppression of Rome and everything that's bad has ever happened to them, so then they leave, here's Mary, who brings the thing that cost her the most, lays it down, and she'll never get it back. I think this is possibly the fourth movement. And so this morning we have the opportunity, I think, to embrace a movement ourselves, to step into part of this story even though we're removed by it by thousands of years. And I think it's the movement that has us walking with Jesus, joining Jesus. That we ourselves would endeavor and dare to move from simple welcomers on the outskirts, on the fringe, where we would step into a space of deep, humble, abiding, true worship.
You see, one of the questions that I ask myself and that I wonder if maybe you wrestle with sometimes is dealing with the fact that sometimes I feel like a really good Jesus follower, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I feel like I'm really making sense of this whole thing. And sometimes I couldn't be any further away from it because it seems like that particular sin or challenge or issue in my life, brokenness just seems to seep up, to raise its ugly head, and I can't quite get past it. Anybody else ever feel that way? Anybody else struggle with that tension of like, man, I, I, I really, I think I'm sold out. I think I'm all in. I think that Jesus is the only way. And then maybe even five minutes later, you're like back to like your normal ways. And I think the movement that Jesus would invite us into this morning is that we would continue to just take small steps forward in this path of becoming true, authentic, deep worshipers. That we would be the kind of people that would press through those moments of tension and frustration and struggle. That we would receive the identity that Christ has given to us and called us his sons, his friends, his kids, his children. He's welcomed us in. That we would move past the shame that we feel ourselves that God never has and sees over us. It's interesting, isn't it? Who is it that Jesus appears to in the garden of the tomb? Mary. None of the disciples first. Jesus first appears to Mary. Because Mary first got at least a fragment of what it was. Or of who it was that she was worshiping. That was in front of her. And so would we be willing to step into this space of, of being willing to be more authentic, true worshipers? That that would be the journey that we would be on. What does that look like? Well, I, I actually have a couple, of, a couple of ways that I think this might impact our lives. A few implications, if you will. And so the very first thing that I would just suggest or invite you into this morning is that as we think about this journey of the different characters and pieces of this story from John 12, you would ask yourself this question. What, what story or what part of the story would I identify with most if I were there? What part of the mob or crowd would I find um, my identity or my most uh, kind of space of being comfortable? Would it be with the superpower, the people that march in, the people that obviously you couldn't argue against, the people who seem to have it all right, the power of Rome? Would, is that where some of us feel most comfortable, most confident? My guess is that for a lot of us, our day-to-day decisions would tell us, would inform somebody on the outside looking in, that that's the kind of life we want. That that's the kind of orientation to our world that we're looking for. That we would be seen as noble and worth being around and powerful, worth following. Maybe even possibly people would respect us or fear us. Now, none of you would ever dare acknowledge this out loud to another person. But my guess is a lot of our lives, our orientation, our project self is oriented around that type of narrative. Maybe it's the peasants who don't feel like they're ever good enough, but they're reaching out or they, they desert Jesus when things get really hard. Maybe that's the part of the narrative that you identify with. We're, we're waving palms today, but by the time we get to Friday, we're nowhere, we're nowhere to be seen. And so a question I have for you this morning, friends, is what happens when Jesus doesn't deliver what you want and ask for? What happens in your story? What happens in your own heart and mind and your passion for Christ when, when things aren't going exactly the way you want them to? When Jesus hasn't delivered for you the life that you've designed for yourself? Are you still willing to pick up the palm fronds of worship and bow down and humbly acknowledge him as king? Or do you and I kind of get distracted and bored and frustrated and we say, well, one more time, Jesus isn't coming through, I'm just going to... Go my own way. Can we really 
say, hail to the king, Hosanna, praise the Lord. Or are we only blessing him when he brings us our expectations? Because here's my guess. A lot of us have frustrations. It might be in, uh, in terms of our marriage or our marital status even for many of us, longing to arrive at a season of life that hasn't yet come, that remains elusive. Some of us might be frustrated or disappointed in, in our own children, the way that our kids are acting or who they're becoming or, or, or the problems that they're getting into or maybe the fact that we, don't, we, we can't have kids or don't have kids yet. Maybe you find frustration and disappointment in your financial position or status or in relationships or in fulfillment or any other ways. And so the question then becomes, are we willing to still bow down and worship and honor God in those moments when things aren't really going exactly the way we want them to? And only one person responds on Jesus' terms, and that's Mary. Her story will always be retold. Jesus even says that. She anoints him and prepares him and worships him. It cost her everything. It can't even be what she wants or what she's even able to completely see. And yet somehow she finds herself in that space, bowing down and truly honoring and worshiping the Christ. And so this week, as we think about implications in this story, as we move inevitably toward Easter and celebrating the resurrection, I want you to consider your palm branch. I want you to, I I legitimately want you to take this with you. Put this in your home, in your apartment. Put this somewhere where you can see it. Consider the failures in your life and your story that get you distracted from worshiping the king. That get you distracted and turn your, your attention away from Jesus. And maybe by seeing this simple symbol, you would be drawn back to pure, true, honest, authentic worship. If Jesus didn't come, friends, to triumph over Rome. He didn't come simply to destroy the superpower. He came to triumph over sin. He didn't come to triumph and to defeat your personal um, bad news or brokenness or struggle or pain, your issue, whatever it might be. He came to once and for all defeat sin to create space in a way for you and I to have life everlasting, to know God, to have fulfillment and peace now and in the age to come. This is part of what we begin to celebrate this morning in this season in Palm Sunday. And the invitation this morning, friends, is that we would move from just simply being on the outside or simple welcomers to being true, deep, authentic, earnest worshipers, even if we don't completely understand the whole story. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, I thank you that You actually don't require us to get it all right all the time in order to worship you. God, I thank you that you accept the humble and simple acts of worship that we can bring you. Father, I ask that you would stir in each of us a a new, deep yearning to worship and honor and love you. God, for those of us that feel imperfect and therefore disqualified to worship and know you and call you Lord, would you speak truth into our stories, God, this morning? Let us see ourselves the way that you see us, God. Father, for those of us that get easily distracted, and honestly, that's me all the time. Father, be patient with us. Continue to draw us back to yourself. God, I pray that you would cause us as a people to be... um, 
to have perseverance, to be fervent, God. To pick up where we left off and to keep going after you. I thank you that you're a God that doesn't turn your back. You're always ready to respond. Continue to draw us into that place, Lord. Make us into your people. Hearts ready to worship. In your name we pray. Amen.